control. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Hi there and welcome to Tech Radio brought to you in association with Fidelity Investments. We are the number one Irish tech podcast bringing you news in tech from around Ireland and across the world every Friday evening on RT Radio or of course you can get it first on Friday mornings or anytime you like with your favourite podcasting app from Apple, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcast. Our sponsor this week, Fidelity Investments, specialise in fintech innovation and they're hiring for tech roles in Ireland right now. You can find out how to virtually join their team at fidelityinvestments.ie. My name is Dusty Rhodes, coming up today on episode 882. My goodness, uh, we're going to be talking about a new low for delivery drones, why Elon Musk makes a terrible boss and the future of hybrid working models. To chat about it all, our editor-in-chief, joined, uh, Niall Kitson, joins me as always. Um, do we want to talk coffee or do we want to talk only fans? Uh, okay, well, let's let's talk about <laughs> coffee first. You're going with coffee first. What do you like? Because once we start talking about OnlyFans, that's, you know... <laughs> that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just... We're in it. There. Everybody's going to turn off. So let's, let, let's bring people lo- along the journey with us, okay? <laughs> so coffee delivery and uh, by drone, I believe this story is, yeah? Yeah, from the Department of Useless, uh, useless Innovations. Um, yeah, so there's trials going on in Italy. In Italy, in... Israel, okay. where an espresso is using drone deliveries. Now, if, you know, I I don't like Nespresso in the in the first place. You know, I think it's it's overpriced, mm. um, sort of, and not terribly nice coffee to to be honest. Um, I'm well. I don't know. Are you an espresso guy? Do you no, like it? No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not really a coffee person, so uh, I wouldn't pay the premium for it. But I know a lot of people do like it. Oh, my goodness. So anyway, two companies involved. Uh, there's Airways and there's Skylinks. And if you happen to live in Tel Aviv and you want your Nespresso, yeah, you can you can get it delivered by drone. Uh, I'm putting this in the Department of, of Useless Innovations um, mm. because I think this is a completely frivolous and unnecessary use of uh, drone technology and, and energy. Because let's let's start thinking about the ways in which we are generating and using energy. I think it's a it's a, a, a valuable exercise to use um and yeah i'm just i'm just not into it if now if even sort of the likes of uh pizza deliveries by drone that that we'd seen um by domino's i think was trialing it in in new zealand even that i find is a a, a little bit um uh, you know a little bit unnecessary it's when you look at things that ups were doing and getting packages to people in very remote locations or trials that were happening in england with getting uh, medication from one hospital to another very useful things unfortunately ups i think has shut down their their drone delivery um uh wing and ha pardon the expression. And I think uh, Amazon is is winding down their efforts as well. So yeah, I think drone deliveries for, you know, consumer goods like this, fairly, fairly unnecessary. But it's when you look into the, the, the likes of, you know, remote locations or medicines, that's where, that's where I think the, the actual value in these things is. So anyway, let's, let's move on to more interesting stories, huh? Uh, yes, indeed. Because, uh, I, I think you're just going to get yourself into trouble by labeling coffee and de- pizza delivered to your house as unnecessary and frivolous. <laughs> 
Well, I you're not you know, going to win make up quite a large part of my diet. But, you know. Yes, listen, let's talk about uh, OnlyFans. And now OnlyFans, uh, for those who don't know or don't admit it, is kind of a, a combination between Instagram and Patreon. So essentially you're able to look at uh, photos and videos uh, that you pay for of people that you are fans of. Um, and generally on this website, the way uh, that people are fans of sex workers, essentially. Yeah, so sex workers and people, you know, porn stars. Yeah. or hey, it's a whole that- new, it's a whole new level of porn, isn't it? Because essentially, you're talking to whoever is the performer, and you're saying, "I want you to do da 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 da," or you're saying, um, "I like you in particular. Here's some money," and the, a, a, a transaction becomes involved. It's just interesting. Yeah. And there, there's also, you know, the the content people decide to push up, you know, free for everybody. And then sort of the, the paid tier with sort of premium stuff uh, mm-hmm. and premium features there, they're under. Now, um, I don't think it, this is the relationship between platform and publisher. Uh, and this is kind of the angle that, that I want to look at it from, because on. OnlyFans uh, has become as popular as it has been off the back of adult content. Um, and it has introduced plans to uh, move away from that uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, one of some of which, you know, well, mostly enforced. One of which by um, sort of the major app stores like Google uh, and Apple, because uh, OnlyFans wants to branch out into more uh, video content. But that also means they have to play by the rules of the app stores, which means cracking down and filtering out uh, the adult content. Mm. Which is kind of a lot of the reason why people went on to this website in the first place. It's not that the content, it's not that it was set up as a, you know, uh, an adult um, content website as such. It's just kind of that's, that's where it's making its money from. You know, it's the same way that VHS was never set up to, to you know, serve the adult film industry. It's just the format that adult uh, film companies adopted because it was cheaper. Uh, cheaper to produce and distribute. Um, so this is kind of, the OnlyFans is kind of the VHS of our of our generation. Uh, it is immensely profitable thanks to the adult content on it. However, if you want to move beyond that sector, you've got to start playing ball with, um, uh, with companies who are a lot more family friendly, but also it's been under pressure from banks and payment processors because um, the porn industry, the adult entertainment industry um, has an awful lot of problems, particularly with regards to chargebacks. Uh, there's disproportionate amount of char- chargebacks um, on uh, payment processors for the adult film industry. And also uh, payment processors really, they've developed uh, a code of practice, if you will, where they will only deal with adult websites if they've got a, a, a certain code of practice in place. For example, you have to be able to document the age and identity uh, and verify it of the people uploading content to the site. Uh, there has to be a review process in place beforehand. And you have, for example, uh, looking at to make sure images are going up with the consent of the person that's actually in them and to make sure that the images being uploaded are, are actually legal, you know, that are, that are uh, depicting uh, people that are of age. So there are all these things that you know, realistically, I mean, you know, inverted commas, according, according to the websites mm. um, across the board, these things are often either impractical or impossible oh, to do. Oh, rubbish. There's okay. been porn sites online for years who do all of this mm-hmm. and accept all major credit cards. Yeah. 
Uh, and this is an issue that the likes of Pornhub uh, have really had a problem with because of this sort of greater, uh, more people are using them. Uh, you've got more people that are up there that maybe want to take down their their material or mm. people who, who are up there not by consent at all. Mm. Um, I, I, the legal I, frameworks yeah. are now in place that they can take down material like that. And I, and I think you're, you're right. I think that... The, the side that I would agree with you on is the fact that they want to go down the app route, that they're no longer a website. They want to be an app. They want to be on Google. They want to be on Apple. They want to be on Samsung TVs and all that kind of stuff. And because those companies have got their own rules and regulations about the nature of the material that they wish to stock in their store, that's why they kind of got to clean up their act a little bit. A little bit. And, and it's almost unfair to say clean up their act because we know exactly what it, what they do. Um, if it's consensual, then, you know, ha- yeah, it's a have a big world. It. Yeah, it's a bit it's a big world and we all live in it. Um, and, you know, an awful lot of the functions on it are not unique to that website. It's sort of, as you said, it's, it's a bit Instagram. It's a bit mm. uh, it's a bit Patreon. Uh, there's another service out there called Cameo, which is personalized greetings. Um, where you charge whatever you want, uh, and that that's in there uh, as well. So it's sort of this confluence of technologies. Mm. But what, for me, what's really interesting here is the relationship between platform and publisher, because you have um, payment processors saying you actually are responsible for the content on your website, whereas legally, and um, because of Section two hundred and thirty uh, in the states, they're they're not. So you're having sort of standards imposed by businesses. On businesses, um, which I which I find to be a really interesting debate. Um, now, OnlyFans has has reined in, uh, in a, from its initial position of we're going to take down all the the adult content on there. Um, they've since said, okay, look, we'd originally said first of October we're taking down everything. Well, actually, you know, we're not going to do that. Um, we're we're just going to see how how we go because you know the number of creators they think will get on to a sort of a family friendly app-driven version of OnlyFans is very, very small. Very, very small indeed. And you would wonder why these people just aren't on uh, YouTube or doing Patreon. Mm. It's OnlyFans uh, USP has been the adult content. Mm. So for me, they're just going to have to make peace with the fact that maybe, maybe they won't have a home out in the app ecosystem somewhere. Maybe they've got to think uh, think a little bit smarter for themselves and go, look, okay, we're not going to pop up as an app on a- Apple TV or on Google TV. We just have to go our own way. Here's a question for you. Yeah. Why should there not be adult 18 plus apps available on Apple or Google or wherever? Uh, in theory, because, you know, we're all pro-freedom of speech, etc. Um, why not? Why wouldn't you? However, um, Apple in particular bases its sort of reputation on the quality of the app store and the fact that it's, you know, I don't want to say family friendly, mm. but kind of, you know, that there's a, a set amount of Squeaky quality there. clean, I think, is what Apple like to be. Yeah, very much so. And by allowing something into their very tightly controlled walled garden, uh, I think that is that has a reputational impact uh, as well. And and I think Google, when they're pu- trying to push products like Google TV, um, which will have, you know, um, Disney Plus is one of mm. its, its main apps. Amazon Prime is one of its main apps. You know, these are brands that they don't necessarily want to be associated mm. with uh, with OnlyFans. So you, you have to look at, at, I guess, the commercial realities of it, that brands 
you know, whether they like it or not, they're, they have strange bedfellows. <laughs> Again, pardon the expression. But, you know, uh, and, you know, it, it, it matters which brands you're seeing alongside mm. on a menu mm. or on a smartphone menu uh, or on your Apple TV menu. So there is that reputational contagion. Uh, and I, 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 uh, it's a weird, strange word to use in this. In a, mm. uh, but I think that's exactly what it is. You know, the brands that you sit beside okay. really say something about who you are. Okay, no, I'll buy. I buy that. Um, mm. I have a theory, uh, a conspiracy theory about all of this. Great, you love a good conspiracy. theory. I love a conspiracy theory. So here's here's what I'm going to give you on this. Right, uh, the whole story is being painted as. Only fans was set up so that, you know, personalities and people in the public eye wouldn't be able to share pictures and video content uh, on a Patreon paid basis with their fans. That was the whole idea. But oh no, shock horror. Uh, The porn industry and sex workers have used it for their own nefarious means and stuff like that. And it's terrible. So what we're doing is we're going to ban all of that and we're going to go family and we're just going to have like recipes and cooking and all that from now on. Um, Mm. The guy who set up OnlyFans uh, is a very well-known pornographer. Mm. And he made a fortune out of a website called My Free Cams, where people went online and did their thing from the privacy of their own home in exchange for (laughs) cash from OnlyFans, whatever happens to be. So I reckon that this is absolute genius marketing. Bravo! Whoever thought of it—that's my conspiracy theory. Do you think they're? Do you think they're playing the victim? Uh, I think, yeah, I think so. Maybe they do. Mm. I, no, I, I, I think, yeah. I don't actually really think I care. <laughs> it's just an interesting story for this week that's that's good to chat about I don't know what their real intentions are behind it but do you know what if you are running that website and you've got a USP like that and it's working and you're making a shed load of money out of it why would you want to break it why you know so so no I I think the fact that they've said no we're going back to what it is that we do and leave them to it yeah right Okay, let, let's do another story. Another story, and this is Elon Musk. What a okay. nasty man. I would hate to work for him in, in some uh, ways. Okay, what's he, what's he done now? Basically, he's just gone on Twitter and he has said that the, uh, the new AI in Tesla, that's mm. not great. <laughs> Can you imagine being one of the people who is slaving over that AI to get it right so that it stays on the road and all the accidents and the bad news and everything we've had? You know, you're really, really working hard. And then your boss, one of the most famous men on the planet, goes on Twitter and goes, yeah, not great. Those people are idiots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. As you as you mentioned there, especially given the bad press Tesla has mm. been getting uh, over the last week and a bit over the new investigation into them, into their their self-driving feature, basically plowing people into uh, emergency response vehicles. Um, yeah, I think I think it's a bit, you know, you stand up for your people. You know, you can criticize in, in private, but in yes, public, you should and praise you in public. shame your people. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, if you know that something isn't fantastic, you know, you you still have to sell it. You still have to say, look, we're making progress, Mm. even if it's not a lot. Mm. You don't come out and say, yeah, it's not great. You come out and you say, look, we're making baby steps here. We want to get it right. Which is exactly what he did when they were, you know, with the the big rockets. 
Mm. You know, they kept yeah. sending them up and they kept coming down, crashing in balls of flame. <laughs> I, yeah. didn't, I didn't see any tweets going around going, yeah, not great. <laughs> yeah, no, because because it's his dream, you know. So it begs the question, if he is dissing his self-driving team yeah. in public, yeah, is he falling out with self-driving cars? Is he losing interest? Goodness knows. Mm. Because uh, based on the original timetable, uh, I mean, he's been promising fully autonomous vehicles since 2016. And apparently, you know, there there's levels uh, of, you know, that, that they've mm. created. At the moment, they're, they're at level two, which is basically sort of a, a massive amount of driver supervision yeah. uh, required. And their, their top level is, is level five. Um, Tesla said, you know, we'll be level five by the end of by the end of 2021, they're basically, they're, they're at level two at the moment. Ah, no, it, 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 that's still going to be a huge, huge, huge success for him. Tesla are just uber cool. And, you know, kind of of all the electric cars that I see on the road, the Tesla is always the one that kind of attracts my eye. Yeah, they always do. And, you know, uh, and that big screen in it and, and, and the whole thing. And I think, yeah, the, the working, as you say, they're working through it and they will, you know, get over the problems as, as they go along. I just think it's a shame that he was on Twitter going, yeah, not great, could do better. Other than that, everything else is, is is fantastic around Tesla. I would love a Tesla car. Yeah, I don't, I, even the, the bonkers Cybertruck thing they, they showed off, uh, was it last year? <laughs> very, very uh, unusual looking mm. vehicle. Yeah. Um, probably a, a classic yeah. example of design over substance. Yeah. And um, the, the other thing is that electric car, I mean, electric cars are... If they're not here, uh, they're certainly going to be here very soon. And in like 10 years, it's going, all cars will be electric or the majority of cars will be electric. That's well, the way. Once the infrastructure is all there. Well, the infrastructure no reason why is, I wouldn't. is coming in. And also you have all of the large car manufacturers who are all saying that we are going to stop making combustion engines in the 2030s. Yeah. So that's it. You know, we're at 2022 almost already. All right. So mm -hmm. that's like in eight years time, they're going to stop making the petrol engine. It's mind blowing, really. It is it? mind blowing when you think about it. The, the amount of things that are going on in the world at the moment actually are mind blowing. Uh, anyway, that's uh, that's Tesla. Uh, last story that we'll do before our interview um, is Samsung. I love this story. You love it, I do think you? This is fantastic. Okay. Well, fantastic. I think it's fascinating. So, um, kind of how safe is your TV? Because we know our smartphones are, are keeping tabs on us because they're always dialing home to their, to their servers, uh, basically going, yep, this is, this is kind of what's happening metadata wise, uh, making sure that the device is owned by, well, maybe not owned by who it says, says it should be, but that, that the owner is, uh, correct. That mm. devi the device hasn't been stolen. Um, all these very, very simple things. Um, so July 8th, writing broke, broke out in KwaZulu-Natal following the jailing of South African President, former South African President Jacob Zuma mm. uh, for 15 months. There was mass rioting uh, off the back of it, right? Uh, and many businesses were ransacked. You know, there was looting all over the place, including a Samsung warehouse where an awful load, a big load of TVs were stolen. Okay. Right? Now, if you happen to get one of those TVs, because Samsung actually had 
um, records of the um, serial numbers, right? So if you had one of those TVs and you can used the internet connection on it, because these were all smart TVs, by the time it dialed home over that connection, Samsung servers were able to recognize, uh uh-uh, this TV was stolen, right? Whoever has this TV shouldn't have it. And Samsung was able to brick the television, completely removing all its functions. All you were left with was a screen. That is it. Over the internet. (laughs) In many ways, I'm applauding. I am applauding because that is the right use of technology, isn't it? I, I, I just think it's absolutely fascinating that our televisions are on the verge of ratting us out. <laughs> Anything that's connected to the internet could rat you out. That's the thing. So it could be your fridge, mm. you yeah. know, or, yeah. or even your, your, your sneakers will probably be connected to the internet. Once they, yeah, the, the smartwatches and everything that are just tapping mm. away and, and counting your heartbeats. You know? uh, don't get me into George Orwellian uh, comparisons or whatever. I think mm. that is a great story, though. And in that particular circumstance, absolutely brilliant. However, Samsung also in the news uh, this week, because if you try to unlock, you know, when you try to unlock their, their smartphones. Mm hmm. Um, so that you're able to kind of get in at the operating system and do things that Samsung didn't really want you to do in, in, in the first place. If you do that on the new flip and the fold phones, camera stops working. Completely. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's that's. Oh, that's annoying. It it is really annoying. All right, and if you then uh, decide to put it back the way that it was and put all this security and whatever features back uh, together again the way it was originally designed, camera works again. Yeah, and it's also yeah. it also doesn't where well, you can't get around it by using a different camera app. That just doesn't doesn't help. The camera right. just stops working completely. See, this is the myth of open source software. You know, it's like, yay, we're running Android. It's, you know, transparent. Mm. We've got, you know, uh, feel free to to tinker with it. Go forth. Uh, and all of a sudden you've got brands going, uh, no, this is kind of still our phone. It's got Android, but no, this is our Well, Samsung is very much, yeah, that's very much their version of uh, of Android. But uh, yeah, I was kind of, I, I did that years ago. And I can't remember why. Yes, I remember why. Because the EU, in their wisdom, as you know, I generally like the EU, but the EU uh, brought in a limiting thing on headphones. <laughs> so even oh, though yeah, the, volume the phone is actually capable of putting out more volume, I can't hear my music when I'm walking uh, down the road or getting the bus. Mm. Yeah. So it's kind of, I want a little bit more oomph and that's why I had to uh, uh, work on the phone to do that. But oh my God, it was such a process. It was like, oh, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> Just stop listening to music. Uh, they, oh, no, for goodness, you can't say such a thing. Don't be, don't, don't be so bad. <laughs> Grant, okay, listen, uh, no more stories. That is it for this week. Now, thanks for keeping us up to date on everything that is going on. Do remember, we also keep you up to date daily on all things tech with early updates and daily newsletters. You can grab them for free at our website, which is techcentral.ie. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, there were all kinds of speculation about the future of work and what it might look like. 18 months on, have our hopes and opinions changed or have we fulfilled its promise, albeit faster than we expected? 
Malkitson met with Fidelity Investments Head of Technology, Lorna Martin, to talk about how businesses have been forced to recognise the benefits of change from the outside in. Lorna, we're 18 months into the the great pandemic of the the early noughties. We've seen an awful lot of trends, uh, an awful lot of words passing into into the zeitgeist, if you will. And of course, one of the things that we're looking at now, sort of peering towards September and what is meant to be uh, the return to office, um, to what extent has our idea of the future of work changed over the last year and a half? Are we seeing a redefinition of what we thought it would be? Or are we just seeing the promise being fulfilled just on a timetable we didn't expect we'd have? Yeah, it's really interesting, Niall. And I suppose, you know, if we look back at the last 18 months, we probably need to also look forward over the next couple of years. You know, as you said, the last 18 months has really changed how we live and we work. So it's not just our working lives that are impacted. It's all of our lived experience. Um, You know, I think if you asked me the question about, you know, the future of work and hybrid working, you know, 18 months ago, I probably would have talked a little bit about, you know, how most companies in the tech sector have embraced a level of flexibility because that flexibility is necessary to attract and retain, um, you know, very qualified and highly professional staffing. Um, I think, you know, maybe early on, um, you know, as we all started working from home, we were all very excited. I think as people kind of lived through the experience and it's gotten more challenging and, you know, you hear a lot of conversation about burnout and, you know, all we had no optionality. Um, I think, you know, the conversation has continued to deepen and deepen and we're seeing a huge amount of research. What I would say is absolutely, you know, things have moved at a pace because, it was absolutely necessary to keep, you know, business on the road. Um, but I think, you know, most organizations are trying to really kind of a sit back, assess, you know, learn a little bit from the experience, you know, understand what, you know, what their, their current employees and future employees want and, you know, really kind of think very thoughtfully rather than just dive in. Um, you know, we're still living through this. and We're still in a situation in Ireland where, you know, People working in technology companies actually can't go into the office or you know, we're not considered in that category because we can work from home. Um, you know, when we first when we first started working from home back in, oh gosh, you know, March uh, of last year, you know, we thought maybe we'd be at home for, you know, prepared for about a month, 18 months on. We never considered that. So I think it's an element of, yes, we've, we've, we've busted an awful lot of myths that were out there where, you know, it was considered that if you work, if you work remotely or a hybrid workforce, you know, you're going to have huge productivity issues. But I think in parallel, you know, people's aspect to life and work has changed. So I think as organizations, uh, you know, we need to look at all of those aspects rather than just saying this is the one the one model for the future. And I think it's going to depend on what your workforce needs, what what um, kind of supports you can provide and, you know, indeed, what other players in the industry around you are doing. Yeah, because part of the experiments that we're seeing, and it is a wonderful time to, to be experimenting uh, 
against the background of this, you know, an un- unfortunate worldwide problem, is that we are seeing the arrival of co-working hubs en masse. We are starting mm-hmm. to see companies experiment with with a four-day week. Um, to what extent do you see companies trying things out that maybe they they wouldn't have in, you know, I, I don't want to say the before times, because that's what everyone likes to say, um, but, you know, very much that openness to, well, okay, let's let's try this, not, not because we have to, but because maybe it's something we should be looking at for when things return to normal. Yeah, I'm part of the board of Technology Ireland, Niall, and, you know, so there's a whole range of companies that are represented around that table, over 200 companies in Ireland. And I think you see varying degrees of experimentation, you know, and you maybe see some differences between, you know, the, 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 I suppose the indigenous companies who are, you know, based in Ireland and everyone is based in Ireland and maybe more of the, what we refer to as FDI or the, you know, the larger multinationals. Um, I think it's a balance for, you know, for a lot of companies, it's down to, you know, they probably were using hubs to some degree before it. Um, but I think what it's, what it's provided, and, you know, I think the government are very focused on providing that network and we're seeing it, you know, maybe across the country more than ever before. Um, you know, whereas in the past, you might kind of see the WeWork centres in Dublin where people would go for, you know, for a few hours for a meeting while they're touched down in the city centre. I think people are thinking more about how do you balance that, you know, where you work with the rest of your life? Um, you know, there are necessarily, you know, there are challenges. I mean, I was reading um, a whole discussion board on Gartner yesterday um, with a whole lot of input from people worldwide. And, you know, obviously there's concerns about, you know, how do you secure data? How do you ensure that, you know, confidential information doesn't leak out into the ether? Um, so I think that has to be, you know, be balanced as, as organizations think about those flexible options. But no doubt there's demand, no doubt there's experimentation. And, you know, I think at the moment, you know, for a lot of companies, it's taken them a while to get used to having all their workforce in their homes where they feel maybe some sense of security around, you know, the, the, the data and access they have. Um, and, you know, again, depending on what business you're on, you know, a hub is probably might be a great option to maybe bring talent in. I think from, you know, for Ireland as an island, um, I do think it's the, the hubs are a fantastic uh, innovation because, you know, if you look traditionally at our workforce, particularly in technology, you know, you kind of see it, you know, a big concentration in the east around Dublin, you know, big, big centres like Gawain and Cork, you know, um, we've seen some great growth in the north, in the northeast. And, you know, you wonder, you know, what the opportunity is, you know, as we as we move forward to really, you know, shift some of that demographic um you know, for the workforce in Ireland to really kind of utilise the whole island of Ireland and the talent that exists there and give people the opportunity to, you know, to live where they want to live. So that's very much a conversation that we will be having around our, you know, our board table in Technology Ireland. I know it's a conversation that's happening within every single organisation, not just in Ireland, but across the world. Looking at the nature of these organizations, uh, of course, you've got the likes of Apple and Facebook and Google who've been constantly revising their return to return to office states. Uh, and then you do have the smaller, perhaps more agile companies that are able to say, do you know what, let's leave it for this month and look at next month. Um, mm-hmm. Have you found that disparity that sort of the larger companies are, you know, the wheels are turning so much so much slower compared to smaller companies where, you know, the, the needs are different, although the same resources aren't there. 
Yeah, I think you're always going to get the headline grabbers. You know, I think, uh, you know, there was a lot of focus on Google and Facebook. And and I suppose if you kind of compare, you know, their presence in Ireland to maybe a lot of a lot of other companies in the in, 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 in the tech sector, what they do is slightly different. And also, I suppose their worldwide demographic and spread is very different in terms of, you know, they have offices all over the place. Um, I think for maybe, you know, certainly a lot of the conversation I'd have here with, you know, some of uh, the smaller companies in Ireland is, you know, it's for them, it's all about access to talent. Right. And, you know, the challenge, the biggest challenge over the last 18 months has probably been, you know, there's no new talent actually coming onto the island of Ireland. And I think that's going to be the big question that, um, you know, that, that that companies have to face in terms of, you know, how do we how do we continue to energize and make sure that we have talent? But equally, you know, if we look at some of the, you know, some of the the, the areas that we focus on as an industry in Ireland, we have a really strong tech presence. You know, we punch far above our weight in terms of, you know, for the size of the size of the, the population here, for the size of the country. And, you know, you have to consider how do we preserve that digital opportunity in Ireland and how you preserve that is having people working in the industry on the island. So, um, you know, I think it's 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 one that, you know, depending on it's very easy, I think, to maybe kind of throw something out and say we're going to do X and Y. Um, I think what we've learned for the from the last 18 months is that you have to kind of continue to focus and experiment and test and learn um, because, you know, where 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 those kind of radical sort of we're going to go in on this date has been thrown out there. Um, you know, those dates have come come and gone because the environment has changed. At Fidelity, we've constantly taken very much kind of a test and learn since the very beginning. And our focus was always around safety of our associates. And every decision we make is on the basis of, you know, what's the government guidance? What what is the current climate? You know, how do we how do we support our associates? So we've been very much more focused on, you know, providing good benefits as opposed to providing, a, you know, an, a date for when you're going to do X, Y and Z. And I think a lot of large companies have probably taken that approach. I think a lot of small companies have also taken that approach. Uh, but I think, you know, the headlines probably are disproportionate to maybe, you know, the, the, the level of thinking that's going on within companies. I don't think they're we're necessarily getting enough credit for how, how thoughtful we are in terms of providing the right environment and supports to, to, our, to, our, uh, to, our, to our employees, whether they're at home or whether they're in the office. Um, I think, you know, certainly for most, for most companies, you know, when you think to the future, you know, the office still has a place. Maybe how you use it will be a little bit different. Looking at how the tech sector traditionally has operated, you look to sort of the the sort of hub space structure, I suppose, where you're looking at Silicon Valley and thinking, mm-hmm. wow, this is where all the great ideas have come from because there's this constant conversation going on between people that are living and working there. That 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 cluster has really benefited at uh, the level of innovation coming out of you know America and. The yeah. world. If we're entering into an age of hybrid and remote working where people don't have that same level of face time, maybe they're not even working in the same country as their uh, as their co-workers. Could we effectively see the breakdown of this hub structure and a movement of that tech conversation to something that's maybe a little bit more insular, perhaps even a little bit more damaging for the overall pace of innovation? 
So innovation is an interesting one because, you know, you hear a lot of talk about, you know, water cooler conversations and people bumping into each other. And there's no doubt that, the, you know, there's a benefit in terms of community with, you know, with like minded ideas or thoughts or interests coming together. Um, but I think, you know, what we're see- what we've what we've seen and we see this in, you know, I work in a global organization, you know, and we have innovation that happens you know, between associates across the globe who maybe never meet each other. I think, you know, where we focus on is creating that sense of community. And certainly, you know, some of the research that I've been reading of late around innovation, you know, is really saying, you know, we need to less rely less on those kind of, you know, I suppose, uh, uh, accidental sort of happenings and think more broadly about, you know, how do you provide the right kind of support and conditions? And how do you think about that in terms of, you know, where it's not necessarily kind of co-located and, and, and present in the same space? I have great faith just, you know, looking at, you know, if you look at technology, how it's evolved even over the last 10 years ago, 10 years or so. If you look at the, the amount of technology we use today, that's as a result of open source communities, for example. You know, things that we rely on every day in the background to, to, to support our living and working. You know, a lot of those came from innovations based on communities, people who had really common interests, who had, you know, visions of, you know, um, improvements that would, would, would benefit not just themselves, but many more. So I think, you know, rather than sort of thinking physically or geographically, um, you know, We've probably learned a lot from, you know, never we've never considered, you know, something like a pandemic would stop us all in our tracks for 18 months. But we have to accept that, you know, there may be more of this into the future. So we're going to have to also think about how do we structure for things like innovation? And that can't solely rely on those kind of serendipitous uh, accidental meetings. I think we have to think more in a much more structured manner about how we do it. And I think community is a great place, you know, a great place to start. Um, because, you know, again, <laughs> you know, I know it's, people love to meet each other, you know, around the coffee dock, as we say, but, you know, we've gotten used to talking to each other on screens to do things that we thought we could never do before. Um, I think, you know, we just need to kind of knuckle down and focus on how we ensure we provide the right supports, the right culture, climate for, for innovation. Related to that is this idea in the States of the Great Resignation, where you have a buoyant jobs market and this rush for talent that has created uh, an overall culture where people can move from one well-paid job to another and even, you know, fairly poorly and traditionally poorly paid entry-level jobs are actually becoming quite well-paid entry-level jobs by virtue of just this uh, absence of talent. Uh, And what people are finding and what companies are finding is that the primary reason for people leaving isn't money. It is that cultural aspect. It is, you know, that that organizational aspect. It's, I think this manager is doing a really bad job. I'm just going to go somewhere else. Are you seeing challenges at that operational level and maybe companies reevaluating how they would look at maybe their values, their mission statement as a way of attracting and retaining talent, as opposed to merely, you know, sloganeering and showing something uh, for the benefit of their competitors. Yeah, so I don't think that's something new. I think it's maybe been polarized by, you know, the experience we've had through the pandemic. You know, so I mentioned, 
you know, it's not just our work experience, our lived experience has changed. So I think a lot of people have had time to think about, you know, what do they, what do they want to do? And I think, you know, as we as we look to the future, particularly in technology, where, you know, there is, you know, a great demand for talent and a shortage worldwide. You know, we all have that opportunity to decide, you know, where and how we spend our working time. Um, you know, and some of this is backed up. I mean, I, there's a there's a there's a Glassdoor statistic that I love to refer to, and it speaks to how you know 67% of passive and active job speakers consider company diversity when evaluating job offers. And I think that's something that you know underpins the statement that you've just made. And you know, to be honest, I absolutely welcome that because I think organisations that are very thoughtful about their purpose, who provide you know, a really, a really strong sense of value and also provide a very strong sense of, you know, reward in terms of what you, how you're spending your working time to employees are, you know, going to be the ones who are successful in this climate. Um, you know, and if I look even at, you know, if I look at to Fidelity, right, we've, we've been on, you know, focusing on not just the diversity of our workforce, but how can we design our organization for inclusion? And I think that's the key to the future. Um, people will make those choices. People will stay if they have that sense of purpose. And as you said, it's not necessarily all about the remuneration. It's about the full experience. And, you know, if we think about, you know, what what we continue to learn, it's not, it's, it's important that, you know, that there's a very clear focus on what, that strategy is for inclusion and diversity in your organization. And it starts at the top. You know, it starts at the top with really strong commitments. You know, there's if you, you can have a really strong narrative to go out into the market that speaks to, to your diversity play. But if you don't have inclusion embedded into every single process in your organization, people simply will not stay. You know, they might buy the, the shiny marketing in terms of, you know, your, as I say, you know, we're, we're a really diverse organization. But if they, the practices, processes, if the leadership don't walk the walk in terms of supporting, uh, supporting inclusion in the organization, it'll ring really hollow. And I think that's probably the biggest area of um, leadership development that's required um, in all organizations. So we've seen kind of the really big focus on things like unconscious bias training. Um, at Fidelity, we kind of take it a step forward, step further than that. We Yes, we do unconscious bias training across the organization, but we also have a thing called conscious inclusion. And you know, that's really powerful if you think about how can you consciously ensure that everything you do in terms of process, practice, how you run the business focuses on being consciously inclusive, being inclusive of, you know, all of all factors of society, all elements of your workforce, regardless of whether you're talking about gender, whether you're talking about differently abled, whether you're talking about neurodiversity. Um, I think that's the power for organizations in the future to really attract and retain talent and, you know, provide that sense of purpose, not just for the business, but also for the communities that we live and work in, because, you know, every, there's an awful lot of data out there that shows that, you know, where where you have diverse, diverse teams, you know, your level of your, your level of creativity is much higher. Your level of profitability is higher. 
So there's really good business imperatives for doing this as well as, you know, just being altruistic or, um, you know, so I think that's that's probably at the, you know, at the foot of what the, the, the movement that you're talking about. And I think that will just continue to grow and grow. But it's not new. It's not just something that's sprung up in the last 18 months. It's probably something that we're seeing polarized as people are more thoughtful about how they spend both their working time and their non-working time. Looking at the creation of that talent pipeline, uh, when we last spoke, we discussed um, the problems of getting more women and girls involved in STEM subjects. Uh, Mm -hmm. And we talked about one of the major barriers uh, to girls and uh, at second level staying within the sciences and main, you know keeping their image their interest in science subjects is that sort of social dynamic the fact that you know it, it's just not cool or it's not appropriate or their friends aren't doing it or whatever that uh, girls just seem to be turned off the science subjects at, at uh, senior cycle level. So given that we've had this 18 months where those same social bonds have been challenged or even broken in some respects, do you think we're going to see a, ch- a knock-on change, a positive change uh, of girls considering doing science subjects at leaving cert level? Or, you know, have we just got to a stage where, look, it's the same dynamic, it's just away from home? Yeah, you know, I think the last time we talked, we talked about, you know, the the, the Leaving Cert uh, uh, introduction of computer science to the Leaving Cert as a subject and, you know, not a lot of focus and work that's going on to try and attract um, students, female students to actually take those subjects. And what's been really unfortunate, I suppose, is the, you know, the pandemic has had a huge knock, knock on on the, on the education sector. And, you know, for some good in terms of, you know, providing greater greater access to technology, but others have suffered. Um, so I think it's a bit early maybe to kind of say it's going to swing one way or the other based on the dynamic. I think what the focus, the focus for, you know, for a lot of us who've been, you know, advocating for greater female um, participation, um, it's been really challenging because a lot of the things that we would have done in the past you know, to try and normalize or provide those role models or provide those great examples of, you know, the, the, the benefit of, 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 of taking science subjects in schools, you know, has been obliterated a little bit because the focus for education has just been to try and deliver education as opposed to draw, deliver any kind of extracurricular opportunities around that. Um, but I am hopeful. I mean, I look at, you know, during the pandemic, we pivoted our um, we, ha- we have we have a, a, a program that we run um, around work experience for transition year students. Uh, it's called Root to STEM. And in the past, that would have been solely based on, you know, bringing cohorts into 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 the organization, you know, having some experiences, having them work with teams, having them meet role models and so forth. And, you know, we pivoted that entirely to a remote experience. And what I can say is that, you know, our participation rates from, you know, from girls in school actually went up as a result of that. Now, I would not draw any causality between the median and the the participation rates, but it does give me hope that, you know, despite all of the other challenges around education, girls were still taking that time to invest and learn and look at opportunities. And I suppose the other big thing that I would say is hopefully will work in our favour is if you look at the resilience of the technology industry during, you know, the whole the, how challenging pandemic in general has been, you know, around employment. And if I look at, you know, some of the statistics, you know, the World Economic Forum showed that 
you know, 5% of all employed women lost their job versus 3.9% of men during COVID-19. However, if you look at the industries that have been really resilient, technology has been incredibly resilient. If anything, demand in that space has increased. Um, so we talked last time a little bit about, um, you know, the, 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 the impact of, um, you know, role models, but also um, parents and teachers and so forth. So you know, I hope that this very visible um, positive impact of, you know, how resilient technology as an industry has been through probably the, the most challenging times that most of us have lived through our life will have a positive impact in terms of you know, how those students are influenced by their parents, by their teachers, by their peer groups. Um, and, you know, I would hope that that will be will result in progress in progression. But I, you know, I have no data to prove it. And I think it'll be a couple of years before we do. But I hope that my, uh, you know, I, I hope that my prediction is 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 is, uh, is certainly on the positive side now. And that was Niall Kitson chatting with Fidelity Investments Head of Technology, Lorna Martin. If you want to find out more about that, you can visit uh, Fidelity Investments at fidelityinvestments.ie. Do remember that they specialise in fintech innovation and they are hiring for tech roles in Ireland right now. You'll find out more about that as well on their website, fidelityinvestments.ie. Do remember as well that you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our own website, techcentral.ie or of course listen to us each week online or Fridays with RTE Radio One Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Niall Kitson, thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by DigitalAudioProductions.com. Tech Central.